0: Section 6 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5, The Capetian Revolution, Part 1. Richard the Fearless in our days would have been called a bastard, and as such he was branded even then by his enemies. He was son not of Liutgarda of Vermandois, but of Esproda, A Breton woman of unknown lineage, whom William had previously married in Danish fashion and put away for the stately daughter of Herbert of Vermandois. These Danish marriages form a remarkable feature in Norman history. Of the five generations of Norman dukes from Rollo to William the Bastard or the Conqueror, the children of Richard the Good alone were born of a marriage sanctioned by the Church and legal in our sense of the word. Loose as the marriage tie universally was at this date in Europe, we must seek for another explanation of this custom of the Normans, which found some analogy in Danish England. The Scandinavians seem to have been once a polygamous people, and perhaps this was a remnant of the ancient state of society. The position of a woman married by Danish fashion Seems to have been that of a legally recognized concubine who could not leave her husband at her will and was recognized as his wife until he chose to sever the connection and seek another wife. In that case, the tie was dissolved, and the children were not necessarily looked upon as the legal heirs of their father. The Church would naturally defend this view and assert the superiority of the wife married according to her rights or, as in the case of Richard the Fearless himself, enforce the subsequent celebration of religious rites between the husband and his concubine. A custom of this sort is found among the Scandinavian people of a later date, and it may have some resemblance to the custom of hand-fasting in the north of England, by which the parties bind themselves as man and wife for a year, at the end of which the connection may be severed or finally completed at will. The so-called illegitimacy of Richard would not perhaps mar his claim to the dukedom in Norman or in Frankish eyes, especially since Liutgarda bore no children to his father. Still, the ambiguous position was an element of difficulty. There were enemies enough who gladly seized the opportunity of disputing Richard's inheritance, and Liutgarda, who had married Theobald of Blois, an enemy of his father, and was by some accused of having assisted in the murder, pursued her stepson all her life with the traditional hostility of a stepmother. But greater dangers surrounded the young duke his father's death was followed by a renewed Danish invasion and settlement. The old feud between the Norman and Danish party, which had broken out in his father's time and, though crushed, had been kept alive by his changeable policy, was revived. The Danish party welcomed the settlers. Hugh of Paris and Louis Dutremer jealously watched their opportunity. The latter, indeed, had not apparently any hand in the shameful murder of Duke William, but the Norman power had too often endangered his throne for him to miss the chance of humbling it forever, and Hugh had particular reasons for joining the same cause. A few months after William's death, the sister of Otto had borne Hugh a son, Hugh Capet, the future King of France. The old kingmaker had already seen his father Robert and his brother-in-law Rudolph of Burgundy elected kings of France. He had been the guardian of Louis, and although he himself had wisely refrained from aspiring to the precarious title, he now began definitely to scheme that he might be the father of a king. Such were the threatening dangers that surrounded the young boy and it was the successful struggle against them all which lends such romantic interest to his earlier years. The chief hope for his success, nay, for the preservation of his race, lay in two circumstances. The loyal fidelity of his father's friends Bernard the Dane, Ivo de Belem, and Osmond de Santeville, and the certainty that the kingly and ducal interests of Louis and Hugh would soon diverge and break up the coalition. For the present, however, they were firm friends. Hugh was confirmed in the dukedom of Burgundy, and the state of Normandy offered them a legitimate opportunity for interference. There the heathen party, recruited by the renewed Danish settlement, had rapidly increased, and the young duke was either persuaded or forced to abjure his Christian religion. Thus the Christian and French parties were driven to appeal to Louis and Hugh. The wish of some of the Danish party, apparently, was to unite Normandy with the Kingdom of Denmark. But even short of this, the interference of Louis and Hugh might well be justified. Rollo had sworn to become a Christian and a Frenchman. His grandson had willingly or unwillingly broken that compact. A party in the duchy had turned against their duke, and appealed to them for aid. Feudal ideas were fast developing, and Louis might well claim the wardship over the fief during the minority of his vassal. Accordingly, the duchy was invaded, the Danish party overthrown, Rouen seized, and Louis gained possession of the young duke's person, while Hugh secured Evreux. United by this common robbery, Louis and Hugh seemed firmer friends than ever. And Louis, elated by the prospect of acquiring the whole of Normandy, granted in full sovereignty to Hugh the Duchy of Burgundy, which henceforth became a dependency of the Lord at Paris. But here all Concord ended. Louis wished to hold all Normandy. Hugh wished to have his share. From the very first, he had been forming a party among the Normans, and now he turned against his ally. Meanwhile, Louis permanently occupied Rouen, and the young Richard transferred to the town of Laon, remained to all intents a prisoner there, where, if we may believe the Norman authorities, he was treated with cruel harshness. The French party among the Normans who had, under the first impulse of terror, applied to Louis, but had no desire to become subjects of the caroling king Felt their old spirit of independence stirred up by this base conduct. Hugh, not improbably, worked upon their discontent, and they rapidly slipped away from Louis. Richard, aided by his trusty companion Osmond, escaped from Laon, hidden in a truss of hay, and the standard of revolt was raised in 945. At this moment, a new ally most opportunely was found. Denmark since the days of Gorm the Old, a single powerful kingdom, was at this date in the hands of his son, Herald Blatand, Bluetooth, the grandfather of our Canute. In Normandy's greatest peril this honest man appeared on her coast, rallied the Normans round his standard, and meeting Louis on the Dives in 945 utterly routed him. Louis, made prisoner in personal combat with the hardy Danish king, escaped in the turmoil which succeeded, only to fall into the hands of the enemies stirred up against him by Hugh. Herald now passed through the land, confirming the authority of the young Duke Richard and restoring the old Norman customs, and then, his mission over, returned to his northern home." Such singular disinterestedness on the part of a heathen king, if we can believe the tale, puts to shame the unfathomed faithlessness of all those so called Christian princes with whom we have had to deal. A strange mediator between the Normans and Louis was found in the treacherous Hugh, who then became his jailer. Deaf to the remonstrances of Edmund of England, Hugh only yielded to the threats of Otto on condition that Laon should be ceded to him, and Louis, the victim of his own greed, regained his freedom at the price of his own imperial city. Hugh and the other princes renewed their homage, but the Normans, exasperated by the treatment they had undergone, revived their old claims to independence, and, if we may believe the partial evidence of their chroniclers, repudiated forever the demands of the Frankish king." Still Normandy could not hope to stand alone. An alliance was necessary, and it was sought at Paris. Self-interest alone could keep Hugh true, but at the same time this so clearly pointed to alliance with Normandy that the Normans were justified in looking to him for aid. After all, Paris was the natural ally of the Normans. Hitherto adhering to the oath of Rollo, they had paid a personal allegiance to the caroling line, but now, becoming French, they of necessity turned to Paris. We have seen in the reign of William Longsword the question raised whether they were to be Frenchmen or Scandinavians. This had been decided in favor of the former, and therefore French Paris and not Frank Laon must in future be their ally. The alliance assumed the form usual at that time Feudal ideas were rapidly growing, and Richard, following the custom of the day, commended himself to Hugh and became his man, while Hugh, anxious to secure the friendship of the Normans for his son, betrothed his young daughter Emma to the Norman Richard in 946. Thus began the vassalage of the Duke of Normandy to the Duke of Paris— which though sometimes denied by the independent Normans was a real one, and deeply affected their future history. We have now arrived at a point where amid the hopeless confusion of the petty struggles by which the kingdom had been so long distracted, two principles arise and became definite and distinct. Since the days of Charles the Simple, the chief question at issue had been the succession to the throne of the West Franks, and the quarrels and treaties between Laon and Paris, the true thread of these discontents. But till now, the claim of Paris to be the sole rival of the caroling line had been disputed by other princes. Burgundy had already given a king, and Vermandois, proud of a descent from Charles the Great, had entered the lists as a competitor. Now Burgundy was annexed to ducal Paris. Vermandois, since the death of Herbert, according to some accounts by his own hand, 943, had been divided amongst his sons, while a small portion had gone to extend the ever-growing dominions of Hugh. Arnulf, since the treacherous murder of Duke William, seems to have lost influence and power. Normandy, long the chief supporter of the caroling line and hitherto the constant enemy of Paris, had at last commended itself to Hugh and concluded a strict alliance. From all these causes, the power of Hugh became supreme. No one arose to dispute his claim of being the leader of the opposition to Louis and his family. The intricate plot is working out, the catastrophe is at hand, and the chief actors in that catastrophe are clearly seen. The second principle follows from the first. We have seen that it was originally the two chief dukes of the West Franks who were allies against their king. The quarrel then was one of the ducal provincial element against the royal imperial. Now that kingly interests were definitely at stake, it was only natural that Louis should turn to his neighbor Otto, The king of Germany had himself to struggle against the jealousy of the rival provinces, of which many only surlily acquiesced in the establishment of the Saxon line upon the throne, and this alone would lead him to favor the appeal of Louis. But there was another reason. Otto had probably already conceived the idea of claiming the empire for himself, and reviving in his own person the position of Charles the Great. And Louis— too glad to get valuable aid at any price, acquiesced. Thus the quarrel which ensued was between two kings on one side and two dukes on the other, the provincial against the imperial element, and it was the severing of one of these alliances which really decided the question. As long as the German king supported Louis, the influence of Normandy was counterbalanced but when that policy was temporarily abandoned by Otto, the fall of the House of Laon and the rise of Capetian France was the necessary and inevitable consequence. It is fortunate that we are able thus to clear our way and that the main questions at issue stand out sharply. Because of the details, it is extremely hard to feel secure. The French and German accounts are meager in the extreme while the Norman overwhelm us with details which are probably semi-mythical. We shall therefore only briefly notice the chief points of interest. Otto, indignant at the terms imposed upon Louis on regaining his freedom, joined him, and their united forces invaded the territories of Hugh and Richard. Repulsed from Laon, Paris, and Rouen, they only succeeded in taking Reims, From which they expelled Hugh's nominee, the once boy bishop. Laon only fell in 949, and then by stratagem. The Norman chronicler Dudo and the later romancers are loud in their rejoicings over the humiliation of the kings. But though their efforts were crowned by no signal success, the cause of Louis seems to have steadily advanced. The church, which was again beginning to make its voice heard, declared for the kings and Hugh was excommunicated by the Pope. The princes of Aquitaine were definitely gained over, and by 953 Hugh had made full submission. Such was the position of Louis when he was snatched away by an untimely death at the age of 33 in 954. It has been usual to speak of the last representatives of the caroling line as poor weakly kings idly dreaming away their lives on the throne, or patiently submitting to become the creatures and the prisoners of their vassals, and the contrast between the strength of Charles and the incapacity of his successors has been used to point the moral of many a tale. This idea, no doubt, owes its origin to the persistency of their bad fortune, but is entirely untrue as to fact. They were unsuccessful. They were in common with the rest of their contemporaries' wanting in political morality, which often injured their cause. But they were by no means deficient in energy or natural ability. Had they been so, the line would have ended long before. The lives of Charles the Simple and Louis Tremer were marked by singular activity. They displayed great power of bearing up against reverses, and no mean sagacity in taking advantage of the few opportunities which presented themselves. But their lot was cast in desperate times. They were surrounded by a crowd of ambitious, turbulent, and utterly fickle feudatories, who, while they agreed in nothing else, were at one in their desire to set at naught the authority of their king, and whose faithless alliances were perhaps more dangerous than open hostility. Their reigns were troubled by constant incursions of the Northmen and Hungarians, the people were too much downtrodden to make their influence felt as they did at a later date, and the dynasty of Charles the Great had not been based upon the wants and wishes of the separate nationalities. Truer it is to say that the work would have been too much for another Charles the Great— than that his descendants were the victims of their own incapacity. End of Section 6